Hello everyone, this is JB with NBW Ministries proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message. It is Wednesday, December the 27th, 2023. I hope you're enjoying a great holiday week and enjoying some great time with the family. I know we are. We've been out of the office for a couple of weeks now to, to wind up this uh, this year, 2023. And uh, this week, as we've been mentioning on the podcast, we're running some teaching messages that I did last month at a, a college down in Texas when I had the opportunity to guest lecture for a week on the doctrine of salvation. And so I chose a few of those lectures in which I dealt with some tough texts and some passages of Scripture that are often misunderstood and mishandled. And so we started out on Monday, Christmas Day, we aired my discussion of John chapter 15 and what it means to abide in Christ. Yesterday, we did part one of James 2, 14 to 26, and what it means to have dead faith. And today on Wednesday, we will continue our discussion of James chapter 2 uh, with part two of that of that exposition. So I hope you enjoy uh, these messages. You know, it's kind of a laid-back time of year. I know some people are back at work, and others are traveling, and others are doing different things, but uh, we can't wait to get back into the swing of our regular podcast with our guests and discussion of current events and all that's going on in the world. We've already got several great guests lined up for early next year. We're going to be doing a lot of traveling and speaking at conferences all over the place, uh, and uh, just uh, really covet your prayers as we kick off the year really enjoying some time out of the office to kind of rejuvenate and just kind of get geared up for what's coming. Check out our events page on notbyworks.org and you can kind of uh, see where we're going to be. And some of those conferences are live streamed, some of them are not, or maybe if we're in an area near you, you can come on over and uh, attend the conference and say hello to us uh, in person. So uh, again, hope everybody's having a great week. Uh, we want to encourage you to check out notbyworks.org. Sign up for our newsletter. That's that's the way you can stay in touch with all that's going on in our ministry. You can reach uh, us by email uh, there. You can reach uh, me or Brooke and, uh, and just uh, say hello. And of course, uh, as I mentioned yesterday, if the Lord leads, we would sure appreciate a year-end gift uh, to help kick off the year and kind of finish strong. Obviously, that's between you and the Lord. We don't want you to do anything that's not going to be focused on primarily giving to your local church. That's the primary avenue of giving that we believe God's Word teaches. Uh, so, But above and beyond that, if you're in the habit of supporting uh, gospel teaching ministries over and above uh, your support for your local church, we would prayerfully ask you, to consider NBW Ministries. And so with that, God bless you, everyone. I hope you continue to have a great week. We will finish out the week uh, tomorrow by looking at Romans 10. Uh, what does it mean to confess and believe? And what's that passage talking about? And then on Friday, I'm going to turn to 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to take a look at the child of God and sin. And what, what is that passage teaching there? But for now, Sit back and enjoy this discussion of James chapter 2 as we wrap up my discussion of what is dead faith. God bless everyone. Okay, we left off with uh, just verse, the very first verse, James 2, 14. Uh, and uh, to reiterate, we said that James is talking here about physical salvation, temporal salvation, not eternal salvation. And he's pointing out that while faith alone will get you to heaven, it will save you positionally or eternally, uh, it's not going to help you avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin. There are consequences for sin in the life of a believer. James has already talk, talked about how if you obey the Word, it'll help save your life. That if you don't, if you cater to the flesh, it's going to ultimately bring forth death. Uh, we want to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. There are also other benefits of walking uh, in obedience to the Lord, uh, including rewards at the Bema judgment. We want to speak and act in a way that will be rewarded appropriately. So this is the point James is making. What profit is there? And the, the clear uh, implication here is he's not talking about eternity. We understand the eternal benefit of salvation, trusting in Christ. You're saved from the penalty of sin. You'll spend eternity in heaven. But what about here on earth? What about as we live out our days? These, this, these early Christians, remember James was written in the 40 to, 44 to 47 range, uh, making it one of the earliest, if not the earliest, New Testament book. Um, I believe Matthew was written about the same time. 
a lot of modern uh, Bible teachers today, ever since the rise of higher criticism, will try to suggest that Mark was the first gospel. Um, I disagree. I think Matthew, the traditional view, is correct, and I think you can make the case better that way. Uh, but regardless, I don't think there's any doubt that James was written in the early days of the church, the first 10 years or so, 10 or 12 years of the church. So these believers were still finding their way. They, they didn't have the benefit of a lot of the apostolic teaching that would come along in the 50s and 60s when Paul started his missionary journeys. Um, God was still unveiling Himself. And they were finding uh, persecution that was beginning to intensify, especially after the uh, martyrdom of Stephen. And so James, as a, a new believer himself, uh, is writing to just encourage these believers uh, to, to hang on to the faith. It was a confusing time. They were, un, you know, having been held in bondage to the law for so long, what does living in the Spirit look like? And they were all over the map in their behavior. They were even committing murder, we find out. I think it's in chapter 3. So he's encouraging them to live a life that is consistent with their identity in Christ. Remember he says, you know, if you are a doer, if you're a hearer of the word but not a doer, it's as if you looked in the mirror, saw your reflection and your new nature in Christ, but turned away and forgot who you're supposed to be and you're living like the devil. Uh, so that's, this is all about the benefit of faith and works going together. James's argument is that there are practical benefits of faith and works working together. Not to get you to heaven, because nobody gets to heaven based on works. Paul makes that clear. But in a practical sense, in everyday life, absolutely there's a benefit to adding works to your faith to be delivered from the consequences and practical effects of sin. So in verse 15, he uses an analogy or an illustration, like a good preacher. He says, Is a, if a brother or sister, and again, you just cannot escape the fact that throughout the letter, he is unmistakably and unambiguously speaking to believers, about believers, in the context of the believers. He never once calls on them to question their faith, to question whether they're going to heaven. So the notion that James here is telling you, you better look at your life, and if you don't have good works, then your faith was fake, it was not real, it was defective. That's completely foreign to the context. So in, understandably, he uses an analogy that relates to interacting with other believers. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily, of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? That's the same word, uh, ophelos. What value is there in that, in a practical sense? The illustration is a perfect illustration, given that he's talking about practical things, not eternal things. He's not talking about the eternal value of whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. He's talking about here on earth. And if you see someone who's hungry, cold, needs physical assistance, and all you do is say, God bless you, and you don't help them, what does it profit? And then he, he makes the connection, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Um, so, you know, again, I think we, here's where we need to understand what the meaning of the word dead is. So he starts out with the question, can faith save you, and remember save means physical in James's epistle and 58% of the time throughout the Bible, uh, and, and he says it's, it's, it's of no profit. Here he uses another analogy and he says uh, faith, if it does not have works, is dead. What does dead mean? Um, Calvinists would have you think dead means non-existent. But if your faith is dead, it means you never really had it. You're not going to heaven. Because remember, they think James is talking about eternal salvation, not practical salvation. So you'll hear people say all the time, well, faith without works is dead. Well, let me ask you a question. If I, uh, this is kind of a morbid analogy, but let's say I happen upon a dead body, a cadaver, right? Um, I guess there was a murder here in the area just yesterday, right? Not inconceivable, you might come across a dead body, I guess. I don't know. Um, but if you come across a dead body, am I going to see that corpse laying there and go, well, that was never a person? 
No, I'm going to say it's a person, but it's dead. It's lifeless. It's not, it doesn't have any benefit. It's not of any value. And that's the way faith is from a practical sense. It might get you to heaven, but we don't go to heaven the minute we believe the gospel. We have a life to live on earth. And if you don't uh, add works to your faith, if you don't live out your faith, remember yesterday we talked about practical righteousness should reflect our positional righteousness. Who we are in Christ should make a difference on how we live. And when we live in sin, we're not reflecting the new man, we're reflecting the old man. And so James is essentially making the same argument here. Uh, you may be going to heaven, but if you don't have works, it's useless. Um, in fact, a little bit later on, he's going to uh, make the same analogy, uh, and there's a textual variant. Uh, where is it? Verse. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, verse 20. I was looking for it. I couldn't find it in purple. So we'll come. We'll come to that here in just a moment. But dead just means useless, not non-existent. If something is dead, it doesn't mean it never existed. It means it's, it's useless at this point. And that's James's point about faith. Faith in Christ will get you to heaven, but if it's not producing good works, it's not going to have any practical value here and now any more than just saying God bless you to a poor and naked and hungry person is going to be of any practical value uh, to them. Faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Doesn't, you know, I know that we've heard this taught wrong so many times it's hard for us to even say it without immediately thinking, oh, faith without works is going to not be real. You're not going to heaven. You don't really have faith. You have spurious faith. You have defective faith. You have the wrong kind of faith. That's not it. That's not what James is saying. Faith by itself will get you to heaven, but it won't help deliver you from the death-dealing consequences of sin. Remember, save means deliver. So now here's where it gets really complicated, and frankly, almost no English translations of this passage handle the punctuation right here, but I think I can show you uh, pretty clearly from other portions of Scripture the best way to punctuate this sentence. James here, like a good Bible teacher, and like we see in Paul, uh, is going to anticipate the objection of his readers. And the point that this objector is making is he's contradicting James's contention that faith and works have a dynamic relationship that will be beneficial in life. James's point is faith and works should go together to have blessing in life, to have profit, to have value, to make a difference to help you be delivered from the negative consequences of sin. There's a dynamic relationship between faith and works. That's James's point. This objector comes along and essentially is going to make the opposite point. Uh, I would paraphrase what he's going to say is as, uh, James, you're crazy. Faith and works don't have to go together. They're completely independent. Some people have faith with works. Some people have faith without works. It doesn't have to go together. So let's see what the objector says. Anytime you see the phrase, but someone will say, that is, uh, that is a, a rhetorical device that indicates he's taking on the voice uh, of an objector. So uh, let, me, let me prove this point. Uh, I've got the references there on our notes, but in Romans chapter, I think it's 9... Give me just a second here. Uh, the hypothetical objector in verse, starts in verse 18. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans uh, 9. All right, so flip over to 1 Corinthians uh, 15. And let's take a look at that, uh, at that passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 and 36. Paul is using the same type of rhetorical device. It actually is not, strictly speaking, um, a, uh, something that was unique to the Greek uh, 
world. It's very common in other languages as well. 1 Corinthians 15. What did I say the reference was? 35 and 36, right. There. All right, so there you see it. Did that show up on the screen? Perfect. All right, so Paul says the same idea, but someone will say. Remember, that's what James says in verse 18 here, the same exact statement, someone will say. So he's the, the picture that I want you to get is, remember, this is a sermon. James is a pastor, and so he's, he's writing it, but it's as if he's talking from the heart. And he's been making this point in the first three verses, verses 14 to 17, that, look, you got to have works to go with your faith, otherwise it's useless, not to get you to heaven, but in a practical sense to deliver you, save you from the negative consequences of sin. In fact, it would be just like saying to a, a cold person, God bless you, but not giving them a blanket. Faith by itself without works is useless. It's dead, right? Not non-existent, but it's not going to have the effect that it's supposed to have here on this earth, living out your days. The su subject of the eternal destiny of the audience is completely foreign to the, to the context. So now, having made that case to his audience, he takes on the voice of the objector. So it's almost like he steps to the side of the podium and says, now, someone will say, and he's now taking on the persona of the objector. It'd be like us saying today, I know what you're thinking, and then we kind of anticipate the objection. So this objector says, you have faith and I have works. And notice here in the New King James how the quotation marks end there. The translators of the New King James assume that all the objector says is you have faith and I have works. Let's see how the NASB handles it. Um, someone may say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. They put the quotation mark all the way at the end of verse 18. So and it's 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 <laughs> it's better, but it's still not right <laughs> because both the, the both the quotation marks in the New King James and the NSB are still not right. Let's see what the ESV does. You have faith, and I have works. It's just the same thing as the New uh, King James. Let me get this off of here. Uh, what about the NIV? Same thing. You have faith, I have deeds. They, that's what they limit it to. And the NLT, some people have faith, others have good deeds. All right, so the, the New American Standard extends the quote of the objector a little bit, uh, but that's still not where it ends. How do I know that? Because in this what's called interlocution or objector reply formula, you have the objector speaking until the, the preacher responds, and he always responds with the characteristic Oh, do you want to know, O oh fool, why you're wrong? Let me respond to your objection. So go back here to 1 Corinthians 15. Someone will say, and then he raises the objection. Then verse 36 begins with that characteristic, O oh fool, or foolish one. Uh, same thing in uh, Romans 9, I think it's verse 19. You will say to me then, again, here's the, uh, the objector. And here's the objection in quotes, because he's speaking for the objector. And then you have the characteristic response, but indeed, O man, you know, he doesn't use the word fool, but it's the same idea, right? So you're seeing the formula. The takes on the voice of the objector who speaks to make his point in opposition to what James has been saying. Then James addresses the objector. So the objector's voice goes all the way through verse 19 because it's only then that James begins to uh, respond. Um, so let me point out a couple of things here. Throughout this sermon, beginning in verse 14, James is using the second person plural, you, because he's talking to the audience. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you, plural, see how that's second person plural? You can't see this in English because in English, you can be singular or plural. If this was written by a Texan, it would say y'all, right? But this is, in Greek, we can tell whether it's singular or plural. So as James is preaching, he's talking to you all, you plural. Um, he says, but you all, verse 16, do not give them the things which they need. Um, then you get to verse 20, and James, it, suddenly it switches to, present active singular. Why? 
because James is talking to the objector now. So again, he's preaching the sermon. Faith needs works to be of practical value. Without it, it's useless. It'll get you to heaven, but it won't help deliver you from the consequences of sin. And then someone, someone might say, and then he puts in quotes, I'm, you know, I reject that notion, uh, James. That's not true. Faith and works don't have to go together. They can be completely independent without any, contract, without any uh, uh, consequence. And then James comes back over here, still not addressing the crowd. Now he's looking right at the objector, first person singular, and he's responding to him. Oh, fool, what a stupid idiot you are. Let me explain why you're completely wrong. That's essentially what he's saying. Do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is useless? So we'll come back to what I've got highlighted in green there in a moment in, in, in the argument that the objector is making. But just keep in mind that the main objection, even though he may not make the point very well, uh, his main objection is just that James is wrong. Faith and works have no dynamic connection, whereas James is saying they do. But let's look at verse 20, where James responds to the objector. Oh, you fool, you, do you, singular, want to know, yet again, like I've already said, that faith without works is dead. Now, if you have a good Bible, it'll note that that word dead this time, it's a, re it's a repeat of what he said in verse 17, faith without works is dead, but there's a textual variant. What do we mean by textual variant? Well, remember, the Bible was written originally in Greek, uh, in James's case in 44 to 47 AD roughly and we don't have the original document we don't have the autograph we don't have encased in a glass case in some museum somewhere this is the original when the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the spirit we don't have that right what we have are thousands of manuscript copies and fragments and in some cases complete codices books bound together we have all kinds of uh, you know evidence of the New Testament and copy, scribal copies. Well, scribes, as they copied things, sometimes they made errors in the same way we make a typographical error today. It doesn't impugn the infallibility and authority and inspiration of God's Word when the quill hit the sheepskin. It just means that the scribe made a mistake as he was copying it. So the, the manuscripts that we have of James, uh, some of them here in verse 20 say, Necros, dead, and some of them say useless. I don't remember what that Greek word is, but uh, when you see the word N-U in your note there, N st <clears throat> stands for Nestle Aland, and U stands for UBS. Those are two uh, separate uh, Greek manuscripts that have been collected and put together uh, that collectively are called the critical text, and it's what most of the Bible, most of our English Bibles are translated from. So this is just pointing out to us that some ancient manuscripts have a different word here. They have the word useless, and some have the word dead. And the New King James chose to include the word dead. Well, let's think about the implications of that. And this is the case anytime there's a textual error, textual variant, doesn't impugn the reliability of God's word. But let's say it's the word useless. That means that when James wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, he used the word useless, and he's using it as a synonym for what he unambiguously used up here, which is necros, dead. He's just for variety. We do that when we write and we speak, don't we? We'll use a different word just so we're not sounding redundant. So he says faith without works is dead. Two sentences later when he's responding to the objector, he says faith without works is useless, which informs what he meant by dead. He's not going to say two different things that mean opposite things. It just reaffirms what we said earlier, that dead means useless. Yeah? Um, so you're saying that the, even the demons believe and tremble, that's a quote that the other person is saying, or the someone is saying? Yep, I knew you guys weren't going to be able to skip those verses for a moment and come back, because everybody wants to talk about the demons. Mm -hmm. We'll get to what's in green. I'll come back to that. We're getting there in a minute, but I'm just trying to make sure you understand the significance of this word dead and the, the paradigm. He's talking to the audience, he takes on the voice of the objector, and then he addresses the objector. And then, as we're going to see, he's going to come back and talk to the readers again. So I, I'm right with you. I'm going, to, I'm going to come back to that, I promise. What did he mean by that? But right now, what I'm saying is James, in his response to the objector, says faith without works 
let's say it's useless. Let's say that's the original word that the Spirit inspired him to write. If that's the case, then we, we have incontrovertible evidence that dead does not mean non-existent. It means not useful, it not, of no practical value. But let's say that the correct word here in verse 20, the original word, was in fact just a repetition of dead, that James used dead again. But we have a textual variant from early on in church history where early on one of the scribes wrote useless. Well, if we say that's the case, it's still very insightful because it tells us that very early on in church history, the church understood that James was talking about uselessness. And that may not be what the Spirit inspired him to write, but at least that's the way they understood it. And when you're trying to interpret Scripture, it's helpful to understand and interpret it in its historical context. And here's evidence, if that were the case, that the early church understood dead to mean useless. So either way, it's a very important thing to understand that James was not saying faith without works is non-existent. He's just saying it's not effective for making a difference in this earthly life. It's, it's, it's like telling someone, God bless you, but not helping them with their physicality. So again, the objector speaks. We'll come back to that in a second. James says, do you, singular. Notice, I've got a note here, singular. James is responding to the objector. Uh, and then he goes on, was not Abraham our father justified works when he, by works when he offered Isaac uh, his son on the altar? Do you see then, verse 22, still singular, he's still talking to the objector, that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect or more mature? See, James is arguing there's a dynamic benefit to having works with your faith. It's going to make you more mature. It's going to have a difference. He says, Abraham, we know from the biblical record, was justified positionally before God by faith, Genesis 15, 6. But he said, but wasn't Abraham also justified by works before men when he offered Isaac? Uh, how long was it between when, when Abraham believed God and was declared righteous and when he ended up offering Isaac his son? At least 20 years. At least 20 years. How, how did you know that? You're just smart? Well, I, I know others from the math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It could be as much as 40. That's why I was asking. I've, I think I've said 20 to 40 in my notes. But certainly it didn't happen right away. Now, if the Calvinist view of James 2, 14, 26 was right, if, 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 if Abraham had died between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, he'd be in hell. Because he didn't produce works that justified him before men until 20 to 40 years later. Right? So, but Paul, But James's point here is just that there is a positional justification, like we've talked about all week, before a holy God that comes only by faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. Period. Full stop. But there's also a before man kind of justification. And in uh, Abraham, which is a great example of, for James to use, Father Abraham, one of the most revered figures in the Jewish faith, he reminds them that when he offered Isaac, that it was, it was a way that it infused his faith, it, 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 it energized his faith, and made it of practical value here on earth. Um, and he was called a friend of God. And then verse 24, still singular, James is sort of wrapping up his, you know, his, his rebuke of the objector and his response to the objector. Uh, or no, I'm sorry, James 24, he returns back to the audience. So 20 to 23, he's talking to the objector and he says, You fool, don't you see? Faith without works is useless or dead. Uh, look at Abraham. Uh, when he offered Isaac, his faith was made more mature. It had a dynamic relationship. And he was called the friend of God. Therefore, I've refuted your point. And then he turns back to the audience. And we see this because it's plural. Verse 24. You all see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now that really gets confusing in English because, you know, Arminians uh, will sit here and say, see, you got to have good works to be justified. Well, just as there's two kinds of save, there's two kinds of justification. There's positional justification and there's practical justification before men. Look back at Romans chapter 4. 
Paul clearly tells us there's two kinds of justification. In Romans 4, verse 2, and by the way, uh, Brett and I were talking at the break, it's entirely possible, because remember, Romans was written in 56, 57 A.D. You know, uh, it's very possible Paul had read James's teaching here. And that in, in his inspired writings here by the Holy Spirit, he's reflecting on what James said, because it sounds very similar. Paul says in Romans 4, verse 2, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before man. And that's first-class condition. It's, the implication is since. So, yes, Abraham was justified by works before men. So you can be justified by works before men, but that has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. It's exactly what James is talking about. So when James says in verse 24, summarizing his point back to the audience, when he says, you all see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, he's not talking about one kind of justification that has two requirements. In order to be justified before a holy God and get into heaven, you've got to have works and faith. That's the way it sounds in English. I mean, let me say it again, and, and you tell me if that's not immediately what your mind thinks. A man is justified by works and not by faith only. If that's all you saw, you'd go, wait a minute. I thought justification was by faith alone, not by works, right? Well, it's because there's two kinds of justification. And James is talking about both kinds here. You see then that a man is, that, that, that there is by faith justification and there's by works justification. By faith justification is positional before a holy God and gets you into heaven. By works justification is practical. It's before men and it, 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 it helps benefit others and yourself. It has uh, this delivering effect from the consequences of sin. So let's go back to verse 18. And James takes on the voice of the objector. So he's been talking to the audience. He steps aside. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking like this hypothetical objector. He's going to say, uh, there's no connection between faith and works, James. You're nuts. And so what does the objector say? Remember, based on the formula, the objector's comments go all the way down through verse 19. It's not until verse 20 that James speaks again in his own voice, responding uh, to the objector using the singular you in verse 20. So all of the translations that we've looked at, I think, put the quotation in the wrong spot. Yeah. Except the King James, where it actually doesn't use quotation marks at all. Right. Yeah, the King James is punctuated totally differently. It doesn't have quotation marks. So in that sense, it's less confusing, right? The inspired version. All right, the, insp <laughs> the inspired version. <laughs> well, the King James inspired me to get a new King James. So that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Um, so, what does the objector say? I, I've explained his point, but let's look at his words because these are completely often taken out of context. So, the the objector paints a picture. He says, "You have faith, and I have works." Remember, his point is that faith and works don't have to go together for practical benefit. The objector says, "Show me your faith." <laughs> Without your works, and there's a textual variant there too, you know, show me your faith without works, it's inconsequential. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by works. And then he gives an example. So in other words, James is saying, or the objector is saying, let's say I have faith with no works, and you have faith with works. So he's, he's given these two differing options. And then he's going to make the point that you don't have to have faith and works to go together. Look at uh, the demons. He says, uh, the demons believe in the unity of God, and they don't do good works. In fact, they tremble. You, James, because this is the objector speaking to James, you believe in the unity of God, and you do good works. Do well there. Sometimes it, it may, you, may, the English translations make it sound like the, the objector is saying, you believe there's one God, good for you. That's not what he's saying. The literal text is you do good. Kalos is just good. You do good works, good things, good activities. Let's see what, how some of the others translates it. Um, you do well, NASB, ESV, uh, you do well, NIV, 
Good. Yeah, NIV kind of implies good. Good for you. Like that's that's you know. So what? Well, that's not what the text says. The text says, you believe James. There's a one. There's one God in the unity of God, and you do good works. He says, but I can show you another example of someone who believes that and doesn't. They don't have to go together. I've proven my point, James. Here's two different people or entities that believe uh, the same thing, but they don't have the same works. One person believes in the unity of God and does good. The other group, demons, believe in the unity of God, and they don't do good. They tremble. There I've proven my point. Faith and works do not have to go together. You have faith, I have works. Here's an here's a example. Look, you show me your faith with works, I'll show you my faith without works, or other way around, right? Uh, in fact, look at, uh, look at your belief in the unity of God, which would have been very significant for Jews, the Shema, hear, O Lord, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the unity of God. That's what James is referring to here. This is still very much a Jewish context. Uh, you believe there's one God, and you do good. The demons believe the same thing, and they don't do good. They tremble. And that's the end of the objector's statement, because James picks it up then in verse 20 by responding with these words, Do you want to know, O fool, why you're wrong? Let me explain why that analogy doesn't hold water. So, yes, it is not James that is saying uh, demons believe and tremble. It's, the, it's an objector who's disagreeing with James. So several points need to be made about that statement, even the demons believe in tremble. So many people will, will, will use this to defend the notion that there's two kinds of faith, defective kind that won't get you to heaven and the real kind that will. <laughs> that kind of faith, such faith, right, like we talked about. Uh, and so they'll say, look, even the demons have faith and they're, they're not going to heaven. Uh, James tells us that, right? Uh, and therefore, their faith was defective. And if you don't do good works, your faith is defective like the demons. Well, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with the problems with that. First of all, demons are not redeemable. Demons don't have a soul. They can't go to heaven. It's not what he's talking about. Secondly, even if they could, nobody gets to heaven by believing in the unity of God. The unity of God is not the content of the gospel. The content of the gospel is Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. He's not talking about eternal salvation here, but because people assume that he is, they like to make this quote. The third point is that this isn't even James talking anyway. When people quote, even the demons believe and tremble, they're actually quoting someone who disagrees with a writer of Scripture. <laughs> so if you want to quote someone who's contradicting an inspired writer of Scripture, quote, even the demons believe and tremble. But you know, he, he, if you're going to quote it, at least quote it in context. The whole point is the hypothetical objector disagrees with James's point that faith and works need to go together, not to get you to heaven, but to have a practical benefit delivering you from the consequences of sin in this life. The objector says, no, they don't, James. We can live any way we want. There's of no value. Let me give you an example. Let's say, James, you believe in the unity of God. The demons believe in the unity of God. You believe that and it, you do good works. The demons believe it and don't do good works. See, I've proven my point. You can have belief in the same thing and have different practical uh, behavior as a result of it. And then James, as we just talked about, calls him a fool for making such an argument. So remember, if you, if you quote, even the demons believe and tremble affirmatively and positively to make a point, James thinks you're a fool. <laughs> just remember that. Um, do you want to know, O oh foolish man? That faith without works is dead or useless. Then he, he appeals to Abraham. He reminds us that Abraham was justified before God positionally by faith, but he was also justified by his works before men. Works are unimpressive to a holy God. We don't need good works to get into heaven. We need the work of Jesus Christ who died and rose again for our <laughs> sins. But James points out, as does Paul in Romans 4 too, that there are two kinds of justification. There's before God justification by faith, and there's before man justification um, by works. And then he says in verse 25, likewise, he comes up with another example, Rahab. And in my note I say, Rahab is another great example for James to use in making his point, because she's a striking example of a person whose physical life was saved precisely because she had works. <laughs> That's James's whole point. Remember, faith when it's, I mean, sin when it's full grown brings forth death, James 1. 
James comes along and says, therefore, you might have faith to get you to heaven, but you need to have works if you're going to stay alive. I mean, sin kills you. And if you want to avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin, let's, let's show some works. Let's produce some works that are the natural, normal outgrowth of the new nature in Christ. So here's Rahab, a striking example of a person whose physical life was saved precisely because she had works. Notice James does not say, was not Rahab the harlot justified by faith and works? It's what most people say uh, that James meant in verse 24, right before verse 25. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. They interpret that to mean James is suggesting that real justification that will get you to heaven is by both faith and works. You've got to have both. If you don't have works, you don't have faith. If you don't have works, your faith is dead or non-existent. But that doesn't mean non-existent. It means useless. So back to Rahab. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? James 2.25. So J James does not say Rahab was justified by faith and works. Rather, Rahab, like Abraham before her, was justified by works in front of others, but by faith before God. By works in front of others, namely, before the nation of Israel. James's whole point throughout this section has been that faith and works are related, right? And then he sums up in verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is useless or dead, so faith without works is dead also. And again, Calvinists and, and many well-intentioned Bible teachers that, that misunderstand this passage, and we want to be gracious because I, we all misunderstood it uh, for so long, and most people do. But because of the reference to a body and life, and because in the spiritual sense we were dead spiritually and then we're made alive by faith, people are prone to think of this again as saying that without works you're not really spiritually alive, you're dead. But that's not Jesus' point. Dead doesn't mean non-existent, it just means useless in this case. You know, a dead corpse isn't going to be able to do much, right? And so it's an analogy. Uh, in the context, the analogy is that in the same way that faith without works is, is useful to get you to heaven, but it's not useful to help you on this earth, likewise a body without a spirit is, is useless as well. That's the idea. I know that's a lot to take in. That's why I've given you the notes uh, that you know I put together on that. That hopefully you can kind of cogitate on and think through. But just you know, the whole thing hinges on what is the meaning of save. Once you understand that save does not and cannot possibly mean eternally, then the whole rest of the passage makes sense. It's a little tricky with the hypothetical objector formula, but just keep in mind the the plural versus the singular pronouns. Keep in mind the normal, but someone will say, which we see in other places in the Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 9, and then the characteristic response, oh, do you want to know, buddy, why you're wrong? And then what he's saying to the whole audience. And I think it'll all begin to make sense. Any questions or comments about that? Anybody heard the, the, the view that I've just explained before? Brett certainly has. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Every commentary you read will say what James is talking about here is the wrong kind of faith. If your faith does not subsequently produce works, it was defective and false and spurious and you're going to go to hell. But that flies in the face of the entire New Testament teaching on grace, what it's all about, Paul's teaching in Romans. James is talking about physical salvation, not eternal. Yeah? So also here, would this go along with what you said in the past that we can like believe something but also not act on it like it's not that the faith is non-existent here it's just that it's not doing anything for anyone in this case. right yeah it's exactly you can believe something and it and and act inconsistent with that faith and that's exactly what we do as believers when we sin we're not acting like a child of god like i talked about last night at the church you know we're we're acting like slave, not free, like poor, not rich, like a you know, pauper, not a child of the king, that kind of a thing. Yeah, when we, the, the normal, natural, healthy thing for a believer who's a new person in Christ is to let the Spirit of God within him reflect 
their new nature in life, right? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. That's normal. It's normal for an orange tree to bear oranges, to bear fruit. But as I illustrated, an orange tree might not bear oranges for four years, five years, for its entire life. If it's unhealthy, if it's diseased, if it's got a problem. But it doesn't mean it's not an orange tree. Any horticulturist will figure that out. So absolutely, that's essentially what James is critiquing here, is the, the, the sanctification of his believers. You, he wants to encourage them to continue to live out their faith in the midst of trials and, and make a difference in this world. And to not do that is inconsistent with who they are in Christ. It's inconsistent with their picture in the mirror. Yeah. Okay, so we, we have, the question is, what is the, when he says faith without works is dead, what is it that's wrong with that faith? What's wrong with it is it's not pr producing what it is supposed to produce in the sanctification. Remember, we, we put up sanctifying faith and justifying faith uh, earlier this week. Uh, the method of justification is the same as the method of sanctification. Justifying faith... Uh, declares us righteous before a holy God once for all at a one-time moment in time. Sanctifying faith progressively draws us closer to Christ and has us reflect the image of Christ in our life. So when faith is dead, James is saying, it's not doing that. It's not reflecting who we are in Christ. It's a weak faith and uh, a wavering faith or an absent faith. Remember, you can have no faith as a believer. Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. And in, in the Greek, it's literally, oh, ye of no faith, right? Apistus. So uh, the believer's faith can be useless or dead uh, if he or she is not uh, living by faith and producing godliness in their life. It's, we don't produce godliness by works. We're not saved eternally by faith and then sanctified progressively by works. That's the whole point of Galatians, right? We're saved positionally by faith and we're also sanctified progressively by faith. So I think the, the defective nature of the faith has nothing to do with eternity or eternal salvation. It has to do with navigating this life appropriately. Remember how he starts the letter when you're facing trials, you know, come to the Lord, ask of Him, He'll give you wisdom, count, count the joy. You know, it's, it's how to interact with life. And how do you do that? By faith. Yeah. So your faith is defective. What, I think you just said it basically, but what, what is the answer to a believer that wakes up and realizes, man, I've been telling, bragging about my faith and everything like this, and yet I'm doing nothing. Like, right. Uh, so what is that believer to to do according I mean do you see any indication in James as to what they are to do right in this passage or is it just more the whole <laughs> well I, I think it, it, definitely the whole letter and of course the whole New Testament teaching as a whole is to walk by faith you know live out your faith in this immediate context the the solution is to do just the opposite of the problem. The problem is you're not exercising faith. You're not walking by faith. It's almost like they have, and you get this sense when you get to chapter 3, it's almost like they've understood and embraced this new <clears throat> concept, even though it wasn't new. It was clearly taught in the Old Testament, but it was new to the first century because they had drifted so far from God in legalism and come to believe that you made yourself right before God by works that the incredible matchless grace of God was earth-shattering to them. And these early believers had embraced that. They had trusted in Christ and His saving work on the cross to be born again and become new natures. But it's almost like then they set that on the shelf and went back to doing what they were doing. That's his whole point of the analogy in chapter 1 with the mirror. Is, you know, you guys, you know, you're, you've heard the Word, and the implication is you've believed the Word, you've been saved, your brothers, but you're not doing the Word. 
that's a problem. That there's a problem with that in your life. You're arguing, you're fighting, you're contentions. Where do these wars come from within you? You're, you're walking in the flesh. And so you know, they almost like they put their positional justification on a shelf, said, hey, done, got that done. Now I can live like the devil any way I want, and there's no practical consequences of that. And that's the motivation that James gives. He touches on the judgment seat of Christ in passing, you know, kind of a veiled allusion to it there in, in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. But his main thrust of his argument and his main call or motivation for them to straighten up and start living right isn't the concept of rewards. It's more this practical consequences of sin and, and the benefit of righteousness. So I think the problem is they're, they're not living out their faith. The solution is they need to live out their faith. They need to to walk by faith and, and, and do like Abraham did, you know. Abraham believed God, and that came at a high cost later when he had to offer Isaac on the altar. Rahab took a great risk. She, by faith, hid the spies and could have cost her her life, uh, you know, if she was caught. So I think that's the, the implication here is that we need to live out our faith. Yeah. I'm trying to get down to just a little more granularity with it. I, I, no, I appreciate that, yeah. Yeah. What do I do to revitalize that? Um, I think, you know, it's easy for me immediately. So the question is, um, someone has read James. They're realizing my faith is dead. Uh, I've listened to the teaching on this. I've read this passage. And, and now I, I really, I, I'm convicted. So what do I do to revitalize my faith? That's the question. Right. So I think it's hard for me not to immediately go theologically to the overall doctrine of sanctification. Um, but, you know, I think in the context, I think you'd have to go back to chapter 1 and the, con the reference to the Word and receiving with meekness that Word. So I would say we've got to get in the Word of God. The Word of God is quick and powerful. It's convicting. It separates the flesh from the Spirit within us and helps us see more clearly. So a person who feels like their faith is stale and their relationship with Christ is waning, it's, it's not vibrant and, and on fire like it needs to be, I would draw them to the Word. First of all, get in the Word. Uh, begin to get to know uh, the Lord better um, and begin to trust Him better. In fact, when we come back from the break, I think before lunch I'll spend the remaining time uh, with a, a paradigm that I've used in my life, it's it's implied in James's teaching, but uh, it's really helpful. To, it's called the no trust obey concept, and I think it really summarizes in a good little chart what it takes for us to revitalize our faith. So, so let's take a break and let's come back at 11:30. That's 10 minutes, <coughs> and then we'll uh, have a short session before lunch. <coughs>